beloved congregation of the Lord, where the Lord Jesus Christ began his preaching ministry. He came into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, selecting a text from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8, recorded in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. We are reminded, are we not, that as the Lord Jesus Christ has come in the world to deal with sin, to be a substitute and sin bearer for his people, he came not only to deal with sin, but all of the effects of sin, all of the miseries of it. He spoke in that text, did he not, of liberty, of joy, and of healing. All of these things are brought about by the coming of Christ, removing the slavery of sin, removing the misery of sin, and yes, all of the infirmity, weakness, pain, and suffering that goes with him. We live, you see, in a world that is in the midst of much death and suffering, because of the sin of our father Adam and all of his posterity with him. We lie under the curse of the law and the penalty of it, which is death, both physical and spiritual. And were it not for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there could be no true, ultimate restoration of the damage that has been wrought by sin. But Christ, you, is, you see, he has come to make all things new, to mend and to bind together that which was shattered and to restore a renewed humanity in the new heavens and the new earth and all through his great work as the mediator where we see his beginning of his great ministry through his preaching and through his miracles. There's much that's dramatic. There's much that is striking to us in this fourth chapter of Luke. But perhaps the thing that does not always grip us is this simple story, this history, we should say, in verses 38 and thirty. Nine, And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever. And they besought him for her. This little episode in the great epic saga of Christ's victory over the devil and sin. It seems sometimes not to really uh, grip our attention. John Calvin said about this miracle, the evangelists, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, appear to have taken particular notice of this miracle. Not that in itself it was 
more remarkable or more worthy of being recorded than other miracles, but because by means of it, Christ gave to his disciples a private and familiar illustration of his grace. If this little episode does not seem particularly striking or dramatic to us, we ought not to think it is insignificant. Surely if one of us is gripped with the affliction of sickness, if there is a terrible health problem among someone that we truly care about, it is not insignificant at all. Christ takes notice of such things that bring misery even to individuals. And so I'm I'm persuaded there are important lessons for us in this text and those that will bring us into important biblical teaching about this theme of sickness and the grace of Christ. We'll take that as our title, Sickness and the Grace of Christ. I hope to show with you uh, the affliction of sickness, the intercession for the sick, and comfort to the sick. The affliction of the sick, intercession for the sick, and comfort to the sick. Well, we may say very briefly in passing, uh, this one text would refute all of the Roman Catholic religion. That's a bold claim. Why do I say that? Well, it mentions in passing that Simon, who would later be called Peter, has a mother-in-law, which I'm sure even children, you can discern this. If Peter has a mother-in-law, what does that mean as well? Well, it means that he has a wife. And so it is that this person whom the Roman Catholic Church falsely believes to be the first pope did not hold to the Roman Catholic doctrine that they are not that those who are called to the ministry are not to have wives. You can read also in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, where uh, Peter's wife is referred to. But here, Peter's mother-in-law is mentioned in a very particular episode in Christ's ministry. A very dramatic Sabbath has taking place, not only that he has preached this sermon, and not only indeed that this has resulted in those who opposed him, but also that there was this demonic influence, this demonic person within the synagogue who rose up and seek and sought to speak about Jesus's identity and was not that Jesus denied that he was indeed the Holy One of God, but rather he would not have this truth to be polluted on the foul mouth of demons who would bring disrepute unto his mission. And so he casts out the demon and so it was a very eventful Sabbath among those who were following him. Simon, that is Simon Peter, as he would later be called, and 
his brother Andrew. Um, you would think that on such an eventful day, that would be enough for Christ to have displayed his glorious identity and mission. But no, he, he, it says in verse 3, he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. Now, Simon, you see, has been already initially called unto the ministry. You can read about that in, um, in John chapter 1, and you can read about it in Matthew chapter 4. He's already been called to the ministry, and yet we will see in the subsequent chapter, Luke 5, that he hasn't quite fully surrendered unto this calling. But he has begun to follow Jesus, at least in some way, though still working as a fisherman on the side, it appears. And in order to support himself and his wife, perhaps his, his brother and fellow fishermen as well, they've moved in with um, his mother-in-law. Or perhaps it's the case that Simon owns a house just for his mother-in-law, and she is there uh, in this house. And so whether it was through their pleading for the help uh, to be given unto her, or whether Jesus himself knew that he was needed of his own, his own will and accord, he makes his way to Simon Peter's house, this place where it says Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. A great fever, this is called, and and she is taken with this great fever. It's interesting. It's the same Greek word that is used to describe how the soldiers took Jesus in Luke 22. Luke uses that word in that way as well. And so the idea is this overpowering sickness with the symptom of a great fever. Not particularly mentioned, but there's, of course, many common ailments that can result in a fever. In this case, it's a great fever. It is an intense fever. And for perhaps an older woman, one that is not only miserable and painful, but perhaps also hazardous to her well-being, perhaps even a threat to her life. We ought to just pause there. And speak about this. In this context of this great display of Christ's love and grace in his mission, we find here in the presence of Jesus, one whom he will show his love and grace, who is flat on her back, incapacitated under this great fever. And so it is that where we would experience this reality, we ought to come to it with the eyes of Scripture, with the eyes of faith. This is an important part of our lives. Whether you yourself know someone today who has a terrible sickness or illness, or whether you yourself someday will find yourself in this position, utterly unable to help yourself, because you're overcome with a sickness, it is something that you must understand in the light of God's truth. 
Why do I say that? Well, for even the Christian and even the believer, if you are beset with such a trial as this, a terrible sickness confronting you, you may find, and maybe you have found, it's in those times that it is sometimes the hardest, the hardest to truly believe and trust in the love of Jesus Christ for you. Maybe you remember how it was that the devil sought to particularly attack that uh, servant of the Lord, Job. Children, maybe you remember that as well. There was Job and terrible tragedies befell him. His whole family was killed. His business was lost. And, and he was uh, reduced to poverty. And yet, we read in Job chapter 2 that the devil did not see this as sufficient after he had brought these things in his life. Job chapter 2 and verse 3, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and ensueth evil? And still he holds us fast with integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And so we read it. Indeed, Job was still a man of faith even after uh, his health was taken from him. But the devil himself knew that his greatest temptations would be found when his very health was taken from him, when he was in the grip of significant pain. And so it is maybe you've found that as well. You can bear with all sorts of things, but where your comfort and your health is taken, it seems as though the grace and the peace of the gospel are hidden from you. And there is even this temptation which may creep in at that point that if such things should happen to you where Christ is so mighty and powerful that he would turn a blind eye unto you, then surely he must not care for you. I think of what the Jews cried out in Isaiah chapter 40, My way is hid from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Such can be the cry of the Lord's people, the cry of doubt and fear, that Christ's love is shrouded and hidden from your experience, for you are in pain. Perhaps even worse, where it's a prolonged sickness. Perhaps even worse, where it feels as though your very life is threatened. All such things are terrible trials to bear. And the thing that we are confronted from the word of God is that Christ's love is not contradicted by such things. Indeed, we may 
see it even in this verse that we've already looked at. He arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. There was something about this sickness that drew Christ there. He was drawn unto this suffering one. For it reveals, you see, the unchanging heart of Christ. His tender compassion to those who are weak and frail in sickness. We may see it in that prophecy of Isaiah where he spoke of the, of the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11. He said, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Here he is, the good shepherd, and he has a special care, you see, for those who are most vulnerable, for those poor lambs that are with child, they are pregnant, and even the tiny, most vulnerable lambs themselves. He carries them gently in his arms. Can we imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ would love his children less when they are suffering physically? I read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Notice that there's a double negative there, which we have not a high priest which cannot be touched. Therefore, we do have a high priest that can be touched. There is a sense, you see, in which Christ's abundant love for his people causes him as well to be, to be heard and to be afflicted and to be sorrowful for the suffering of his people. He has compassion for them. He cannot be utterly content ultimately until he has redeemed them all from all suffering. Maybe you're familiar with that most famous text for husbands. Surely I hope, husbands, you meditate much upon these words in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. But read on there in verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. So it is. The analogy is very plain. A Someone doesn't hate their own body. If, if part of their body is hurting, then they themselves are made miserable. Whether it's a little toe or a little finger or um, a sore tooth, whatever it may be, this, this brings to your attention. You cannot be happy as you should when you are in pain. So also a husband with a wife. A husband who is the head of his wife and the head of his home is to exemplify this pattern, cherishing his wife, treating his wife with gentleness, tenderness, and respect as he leads her in the ways of the Lord. And why is that so? Well, because Christ himself, you see, 
He cherishes, he nourishes his people, his spiritual body, the church of true believers. Where one of his people is suffering, he does not turn a blind eye. He does not ignore such an event. No, he himself is touched by this. And he exerts his grace and power and spirit and, and sovereignty to ensure that that saint is cared for. Listen to what the Puritan John Owen wrote. Quote, he, Christ, is like a tender father who, though perhaps loving all his children alike, will take the most pains with and give most of his presence to the ones that are sick and weak. He does so even though such children, the children of God, may be the most forward or perverse, and it would seem the hardest to bear with. He himself suffers with them and takes a share in all their troubles. Oh, and he had not only in mind those who were afflicted in body, but also in soul. Owen himself could speak of health challenges in his life, but also much spiritual challenges. And, and he knew that all of the comfort he needed could be found in the great physician. That all of his afflictions, they could not separate him from the love of Christ. And yet, he was surely tempted to doubt this. And so he wrote these words in order to stir people up in order to understand the depths of the riches of the love of Christ when we are so afflicted. Why then? Why this affliction? Given what I've clearly shown, that Christ has such love and compassion for the sick, why can we say that Christians still get sick? Well, it's a striking thing. There would be those who would say, well, it's because of the weakness of their faith. You see, if there was a perfect faith, there would be no sickness. There would be no suffering. And so you have these so-called faith healers who will go about and just say, well, it's just a problem with your faith. If you believe harder, you will never get sick. And we know, of course, based on the teaching of Scripture, that this is utterly false. Utterly false, indeed. Christ is utter sovereignty over sickness. He is not um, powerless to heal in whatever way he chooses, through the ordinary means of physicians or through an extraordinary miracle. He can and does this today. But we must never say, must never say, that sickness is a sign of his lack of love or our lack of faith. That can't be it at all. Many cases of sickness. You saw Job, how he was brought under such turmoil. We, we see this woman herself who experiences a great measure of sickness. You know, it's striking. In Colossians chapter 1, there's a wonderful theme there about Christ as the head of the church, the head of the body. He is called in Colossians 1, verse 18. And then you go down to verse 24 of Colossians 1, and he speaks to these Christians, the body of Christ, and he says this, who now rejoice 
in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So Paul speaks about his own afflictions, as he does elsewhere in his letters. He speaks of that thorn in the flesh that he prayed to be removed. And the answer comes from heaven. My grace is sufficient for you. There was a reason for his suffering and affliction. But why does he say to fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. Can we not say that the afflictions of Christ were perfect and complete on the cross and in his life, that he, as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, had no lack, nothing was behind or lacking in his sufferings. And yet it says, fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. You see, this is the afflictions of that Christ endures in his spiritual body, the afflictions of his people, believers like Paul. And so he could say in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Why the sufferings of the Christian? What possible reason could there be? Well, Paul says this. In my sufferings, I am made conformable unto Christ in his death. I have fellowship with his sufferings. You see, part of becoming like Christ, having that Holy and Christ-like character as the Holy Spirit transforms you is also bound up with this. Suffering. Suffering has this purpose to unite us more and more to Christ. And oh, we think of the sufferings of Christ upon the cross. Those agonies. You know that same Psalm, which reads, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 22. This is what we read in that psalm, which predicted the sufferings of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs also have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Oh, the sufferings of Christ upon the cross. No, we would never, never compare our sufferings to Christ in an absolute sense. No. He was forsaken of the Father on the cross. He had not even one shred of comfort from his Father's loving presence as he endured the wrath of hell in our place upon the cross. But where? Where we in the midst of this veil of tears, enter into any kind of suffering, whether of sickness or anything else. This comes for no, not for no reason, Christian, 
but in order that you would be made more like your Savior and be brought close unto him. Here is the true reason for sickness. Well, thus we see this affliction that is spoken of here, but I also wish to speak to you of intercession for the sick. Intercession for the sick. Verse 38 again, and he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house, and Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever. And they besought him for her. So here there is this urgent request, this intercession on behalf of Peter's dear mother-in-law. And looking at the meaning of that, that Greek word, it seems to be it's to make an earnest request, especially by someone who is to be heard and considered because of their position, because of their position. And the idea here is that you have these believers, Simon and Andrew, and they love the Lord Jesus Christ. They've trusted in him. They are following him. And so they, as Christians, they intercede for this one that they love. They plead with Christ to help this one that they love. Perhaps also Peter's wife was interceding with them for her mother. But surely there is Peter praying as he should for his mother-in-law to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well... This is an important theme, isn't it? Praying for the sick and otherwise interceding for them. Maybe you didn't notice this, but in the back of our blue psalters, as a holdover from when these books were published, there's actually a number of things designed specifically to comfort the sick. So that whether a minister or a Christian who has one of these books gives them some ideas of some things to say to the sick that are suffering and some ways that we can pray when we are sick and when we are praying for those who are sick. I notice uh, there is, for example, the prayer for the sick and spiritually depressed in the back of our Psalters on page 174. And I want to just read a quotation for the sort of things that should be prayed for in connection with sickness. Quote, Increase, O Lord, our faith by thy Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more united with Christ, our spiritual head, to whom thou dost desire to conform us, both in suffering and in glory. Lighten our cross, so that we be in our weakness, may be able to bear it. We submit ourselves without reserve to thy holy will, regardless of whether thou wouldst leave our souls here in these earthly tabernacles, or whether thou wouldst take them unto thyself into eternal life. Since we belong to Christ and therefore cannot perish, we even desire to depart from this weak body in the hope of a blessed resurrection, knowing that then it will be restored to us in a much more glorious form. 
Oh, I love that emphasis. Bring together all those scriptural truths. But throughout it, there is this underlying note of thy will be done. You think, for example, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There they are before the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the, the king there, he's threatening to throw them into the furnace unless they, they bow down before the statue. And what are these three believers say? Well, they say, well, God, he is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will never serve your idol. So there is that. There's always the understanding that the Lord can deliver us from affliction. Surely you pray, don't you? That the Lord would heal those whom you love who are sick. But you also know this. And sometimes the Lord does not give what we ask because he gives something greater, something better. We think what we pray for is always the greatest of blessings. But where the Lord would receive unto himself one of his precious children, sanctified in the spirit and redeemed through the blood of Christ, they enter into a greater joy than could ever be imagined. But where we ourselves may be suffering under such things, where we know someone that we love is suffering under such things, and sometimes it can be hard for our faith to be strong. The pain is real like a knife, and yet Christ seems distant from us. So we must pray. We must pray and intercede for those who are sick. We must take a lesson from Peter here. Oh, I hope that you are praying for those in our church family, for those in the extended families of the members of this church who are sick. You know, there's a special blessing that is uh, promised to those who pray and help the sick. Would you turn with me in Matthew 25? Matthew 25. I think this is important. So I'm going to ask you to turn there in verse uh, 31. We'll begin to read. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before, from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was Sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we ye a hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison? And came unto thee. 
And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. I wonder, do we understand that sufficiently? Praying for the sick, visiting the sick, providing a meal for the sick. This is something that is most precious to the Lord Jesus, you see. He is so bound to his spiritual body, the church of true believers, that their suffering is his suffering. So it was that when that uh, man Saul was persecuting the church, Jesus doesn't cry out to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Oh, it's such a striking thing. He's looking at Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 8. There it reads, he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. To very touch the eye. You would notice that, wouldn't you? If someone reached out and just tabbed your eye? Well, so is it that Jesus takes such notice of those of his spiritual body who are suffering and also promises reward, reward to those who would also take notice of their suffering and would seek to, to relieve their suffering. I know, of course, the reverse, right? Those who were on the left hand and cast into outer darkness, were those who did not, did not care for the sick, as well as these other groups that are mentioned. Testifying, indeed. They'd never known the Lord. They had never trusted in his grace. And so they had not those lives of gratitude for his grace and salvation. It's a awful thing to contemplate where a true Christian would fall away from this high privilege of being, as it were, the hands and the feet of Christ, showing love unto his spiritual body. For where one part of the body suffers, so must all. And we have such encouragement, you see, such encouragement to pray for and intercede for and otherwise assist those who are sick and hurting because Christ himself intercedes for his own. Listen to John Owen again. We do not have relief from trouble, recovery of health, ease of pain or freedom from any evil without the intercession of Jesus Christ. If believers look on their mercies as the dispensing of common providence, as just another thing that God is doing in providence, then they are unacquainted with their own condition. This may indeed be the reason we do not esteem them more. We are not more thankful for them, nor more fruitful in the enjoyment of them. We do not see how, or by what means, or by what account, they are dispensed to us. The people of God in the world today are alive and undevoured only because of the intercession of the Lord Jesus. His compassion has been the fountain of their deliverance. Oh, indeed, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
And together with us, all of the body of Christ, especially those who are afflicted, shall we not intercede, brothers and sisters, for one another? Has it not been, uh, as it were, a, a cup of cold water in a land of desert when you have heard those words, I am praying for you? And you were most hard done by. Let us not be those who are silent where we see others in our church family or in the Christian community or even the, our neighbors who are suffering. Let us rather have the bowels of compassion which Christ himself exemplifies. Oh, we've spoken here about the affliction of the sick and intercession of the sick. Now I would also speak unto you about comfort for the sick. We read here in verse 39, And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Oh, do we not have a glorious picture here? Our pain and our suffering when we are faced with such things are those who we love. It seems so great and huge. Our whole universe may sometimes be pain. But here is the blessed Savior. He stands over all those circumstances. He draws close unto the suffering woman. And the very word which cast out devils, the word which stilled the wind and the waves, the very word which spoke this world into being, it rebukes the fever. John Calvin writes, fevers and others' diseases, famine, pestilence, and calamities of every description are God's heralds by whom he executes his judgments. Now, as he is said to send such messengers by his command and pleasure, so also he restrains and calls them whenever he pleases. Isaiah 40, verse 29, he giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might. He increases, increaseth strength. You see, God is in control of all things and the Son of God rules and reigns over every circumstance, every affliction. Were it not for his will, believer, none of our enemies, even the enemies of our sicknesses, could not have any power over us. And where the time is appointed, he will redeem us from this suffering at his appointed time. James chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall in diverse temptations. We could say also trials, afflictions. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But the patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Isaiah 63, verse 9, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Oh, what a glorious picture here. Jesus in his sovereign power and grace, he saves this woman from her fever, and immediately she stands up and begins to serve others. You see, to serve others in true gratitude is the sure expression, if it is unto God and to his glory, that we have received his grace. 
We say with the psalmist, Psalm 116, verse 12, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits unto me? And we serve others. It's interesting. The word that's used here is the same word for a deacon. Obviously, now that she's called to the office of deacon, but she serves gladly those whom she loves, those of the household of faith, through the grace and the strength that God has supplied unto her through Jesus Christ. Let us also take this to heart. We use all that we have as good stewards of the manifold grace of God to bring glory unto his name and to bring blessings unto others. Oh, I would close with this. Dear one, if you would find yourself either today or in the future under this suffering, remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said, that you must take up your cross, take up your suffering, and follow after him. Samuel Rutherford knew great suffering in his own life. He was persecuted for the cause of Christ, removed from the ministry, and even imprisoned. And where he wrote to one of his friends, who was also a minister named Hugh McPhail, he wrote this unto his friend. Believe me, brother, I give it to you under my own handwriting, that whoso looketh on the white side of Christ's cross, the happy side of Christ's cross, and can take it up handsomely with faith and courage, such find it, such find it such a burden as sails are to a ship or wings are to a bird. He says, my affliction is like that. It is the same burden that sails are to a ship and wings are to a bird. I find that my Lord hath overgilded that black tree and hath perfumed it and oiled it with joy and consolation. Like a fool once I would chide and plead with Christ and slander him to others of unkindness. But I trust in God not to call my glooms unkind again, for he hath taken from me my sackcloth. Oh, the Lord, you see, gave this man comforts in his affliction of the grace and mercy of God and Jesus Christ. As you, believer, would take up your cross and follow after Christ. May you know such things as well.